Hey, good morning, everyone. Good to see you. Thanks for being here. Thanks for joining us for worship in person and online. I want to welcome all those joining us online. And I want to give an extra special welcome to all of our church family over at Impact Bethany this morning who are also worshiping with us together. And I want to also say, if you're a guest with us today, we are so thrilled that you're here. Uh, This is the second week of a special message series called Truth Over Trend, where we're looking at some of the biggest social issues in our world and our country and our culture today. Last week, we began by talking about gender identity, and this weekend, we're going to continue by talking about same-sex relationships. But before we do that, uh, I would like to invite you to bow with me, and let's just open with a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we are so grateful for another day of life and so grateful for the opportunity to be together as a family, a spiritual community this morning to worship you. Uh, My heart feels the heaviness of this message. Uh, This is such a real issue to so many folks, not just in our world today, but right here in our own church community. And so I pray for grace and truth and humility. We love you. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Not long before my 17th birthday, my family moved from Tulsa, Oklahoma to Houston, Texas. My older sister and brother had both graduated from high school. They were out of the house, and so it was just myself and my younger brother, Kenneth, that most of you know, and my younger sister, Kimberly, along with our mom and dad. I'm eight years older than my brother, Kenneth, and I'm 12 years older than my brother, my sister, rather, Kimberly. And my mother found a Christian church not far from our home that we began to attend. And when I say we began to attend, that means we were there every time the doors were open. That was my life growing up. I know many of you could say the same thing. And so I didn't just go to church on Sunday morning. I went to the Sunday school class for high school students. I went to the Sunday night youth program for high school students and any other high school activity uh, that was planned throughout the week. Uh, There was another boy there in my uh, youth group and my peer group named Stephen. He was a year older than me. uh, And a couple of things were pretty clear about Stephen. Number one, it was clear that his mom and dad made him go to church because he had no interest in being there. The other thing that was clear about Stephen was that he was gay. Now, This was in 1975, so almost 50 years ago. And there wasn't any openness or acceptance related to people who were gay, at least not in my memory. Remember, I was just a teenager and I had a very limited view of the world and life at that time. But here's my strongest memory about Stephen, and I don't mean this in a critical way, just as a matter of fact. Stephen was always angry and he was always mean. Don't read anything more into that than me just telling you about a story from my past. He had no interest in being in church, and that was one of the reasons why he was angry and probably one of the reasons why he was always mean. He made it clear that once he was out from under the uh, authority of his mom and dad, he wouldn't be back in church again. Even though the adults that served the high school ministry of that church were, were some of the kindest, most loving, gracious people that I've ever met. In fact, I still have friendships with many of them today. I didn't have much of a relationship with Stephen during our time in church together. He had a younger sister that I was friends with, but the truth is Stephen really wasn't friends with anybody. He didn't have any interest in being friends with anyone. But 
I do remember, as I think back about those years, that there were a handful of times where Stephen let his guard down and you got a glimpse of who he really was. And who he really was, friends, was just someone who was struggling with the reality, with one specific reality of life in a broken and confused world. And I have wondered about Stephen on several different occasions during my life, especially when I became a pastor. I actually tried to find him online not long ago, and I'd just about given up when I ran across an announcement that had his name in it. He's an architect. He lives in California, and there was a picture of him, and that was the Stephen that I knew almost 50 years ago. There's a couple of reasons why I tell you that story. The first one is because I want you to know that throughout my life, I have known people who struggle with same-sex attraction or who lived openly in same-sex relationships. I've known them in a variety of different settings. I've had close personal friendships with people like that, and there have been people like that in every church that I have served. I don't have time to tell you all their stories, but I'm not speaking about this today from someone who is totally isolated from this reality. And the second reason why I tell you that story about Stephen is because, as I mentioned, I think about him from time to time. And when I think about Stephen, this is the question that comes to my mind. What would it take for a church to reach someone like Stephen? Because the church that we went, to church, we went to together when we were teenagers was a warm and a kind church that was full of love and full of loving people. I never saw anyone mistreat Stephen. I never heard anyone talk badly to him. The pastor of the church was a younger man who had been a very successful youth pastor in a couple of large churches across the country. And so he had a heart for teenagers, and he demonstrated that in many different ways. But none of that made a difference in Stephen's life who had to have felt... very alone. Well, fast forward 50 years and things are different today because same-sex relationships are just a part of our culture. And sadly, the narrative that our culture puts forward today related to people who are gay or lesbian is that as believers, we only have two responses to them. And those responses are either affirmation or alienation. But I reject that. And I'm not afraid to tell you as your pastor that you should reject that as well because there's another option that's available to us and I'm just gonna call that a biblical option or a biblical response. Listen to what authors Denny Burke and Heath Lambert say in their book called Transforming Homosexuality, what the Bible says about sexual orientation and change. And this is related to that the culture's idea that there's only two responses and that's the response of affirmation or alienation, although in their book they call it affirmation or hate. They write, are these the only two options? Is it true that our only options are either to hate our same-sex attracted neighbors or affirm them? This is a false choice. There is another option. It is the biblical option and it also happens to be the one that is most loving because we are called to speak the truth in love. And I'll put the words of Ephesians 4.15 up on the screen that we looked at last week when we talked about gender identity. This is what Paul writes to the church in Ephesus as he writes about what the church looks like as it grows up under the leadership or the headship of Jesus who is the head of every church. Jesus is the head of this church. 
He writes this, instead, speaking the truth in love, everyone say love, love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. If we're gonna be like Christ in our lives, then one of the defining characteristics of our life has to be that we speak the truth at all times, but we speak the truth at all times in love. As Christians, we don't take our cues from the culture so when it comes to the questions of life, like gender identity that we talked about last week or same-sex attraction that we're talking about today, we take our cues from Scripture and we ask, what does God tell us in His Word? If we believe that God created the world, then we need to believe that God is the one who knows how it's supposed to work, which means God is the one who knows what's best for all of us. So here's the question. How could we, as a church, reach and care for the Stevens of the world today in a way that makes a difference? I'm gonna give you three answers to that question. If you're someone who likes to take notes, then here's the first thing. Genuine compassion. That's where we'll start. Do, do you think the church, I'll just begin with an, a question. Do you think the church, and I'm not talking about this church, I'm not talking about Mount Pleasant, but the church as a whole, do you think the church has a good reputation when it comes to showing compassion to people who struggle with same-sex attraction? Now, having asked that question, I want you to hear me close. I'm not someone who ever talks badly about the church, and here's why. Because I love the church. I have a deep, deep abiding love for the church. I love the church I grew up in. In many ways, I believe that church saved my life. I love the church that I went to with Stephen in Houston, I've loved every single church that I've ever served, and I love this church deeply, and so I'm not ever going to talk badly about the church. I'm not gonna do that. But it's out of my love for the church that I ask the question. Because it's easy at times to get so focused on people's choices and people's struggles and people's actions that we forget to see them as someone who is deeply loved by God. And that's not just people who struggle with same-sex attraction. That's people who struggle with a lot of different issues in their life. But as Christians, we need to view everyone with compassion. So let me just give you some, some real fundamental truths that I'm sure most, if not all of you, already know from the Bible, just as a reminder of why we need to view all people with compassion. Here's the first one, because we are all created in God's image. I'm gonna put Genesis 127 up on the screen. This was a verse we looked at multiple times last week. And because we always make the public reading of Scripture a part of our service, I'm going to invite you, if you're able, to stand with me right now. We're going to read this verse together. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 27. Let me hear your voices. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created him. Male and female, he created them. All right, you can be seated. We always ask God to bless the reading and the hearing of his word. Every single human being is created in God's image, meaning all human life is sacred, and all human life has inherent dignity and worth. And that includes people who struggle with their sexual identity and people who struggle with sexual, or excuse me, same-sex attraction. I don't know if you're familiar with the name John Stott. Uh, he's a pastor and writer, but he wrote a book all the way back in the 1980s called Same-Sex Relationships, so it was pretty, pretty uh, groundbreaking at the time. And while he clearly in his book acknowledges that same-sex relationships are outside of the will of God for all of us, he also writes these words. Yet we also need to be sensitive to the fact that we are dealing with people's emotions, their sexual identity, and their dreams of finding love and acceptance. We're, 
we are all human and we are all sexual. If we stereotype and stigmatize one another, then we do not treat each other with the respect that each person deserves. As far as the Bible is concerned, there is no such phenomenon as a homosexual or a heterosexual. There are only people made in the image of God. And as Christians, we should have compassion for all people regardless of their sin or their struggle because we understand that everyone has been created in the image of God. God created us to be his image bearers in this world. We have the stamp of God on our lives. Here's a second thing that reminds us that we need to show compassion to all people. It's the truth that we are all sinful just in different ways. Every last one of us We have compassion for all people because we are all sinful, just in different ways. You remember the story in John 8 about how one day Jesus was teaching and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law drug a woman in front of him who had been caught in adultery. They didn't bring the man, just the woman, making most Bible scholars think that it was a situation where they set the woman up in order to be able to bring him, her in front of Jesus to try to trap him with their questions, which I think we've talked about before is one of the stupidest things you could ever try to do with Jesus. And so they drug her in front of him, and I'm going to paraphrase this, but this is what they said. This woman was caught in adultery. The law, in the law, Moses commands us to stone such a woman. What do you say? And they were just hanging on his response because they had a response for whatever he said that would accuse him. But remember in the story, Jesus didn't say anything. He just, Jesus is the master of the teachable moment. He just kneels down and begins to write in the sand with his finger, and he doesn't say anything. And finally, when he does stand up and speak, uh, and, and speaks, he says, if, anyone, if, any of you, excuse me, if any of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And you know the rest of the story. One by one, the rocks dropped and all those people walked away until it was just Jesus. And he said, where are those that accuse you? And she basically said, they're gone. And he said, neither do I can accuse you. But then he said to her, go and sin no more. We're all sinners, just in different ways. Jesus said, if any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Look at these words on the screen from James chapter three and verse two. Simply just says that we all stumble in many ways. Now, if I open my Bible to James chapter three this morning, I would see that right above the chapter heading for James chapter three are the words taming the tongue. And what James does is he goes on there from James chapter three and verse two and talks about all the different ways we sin with our words, which the Bible has a lot to say about because we all do that. And it's appropriate for him to begin by saying, we all stumble in many ways. We all stumble in many ways. Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We may have different struggles. We may have different temptations in our lives. But there is one way in which we are all the same. The one thing that every one of us right now has in common is that we are all sinners. We all struggle with sin, at least on some level. The third reminder from the scriptures that we are to view all people with compassion is that Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. Matthew 22, an expert in the law asked Jesus one day, which is the greatest commandment? And Jesus answers like this, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment and the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Here's a simple explanation of those 
words. You may not have experienced or struggled with same-sex attraction, but if you are a Christ follower, you should love your friends and your family members and your neighbors who do. And Jesus tells us in the parable of the Good Samaritan is that our neighbor is anybody that we encounter who has a need. Sam Albury, who's a Christian author who lives in England, acknowledges that he experiences same-sex attraction in his life, and yet at the same time he chooses, consciously chooses, every single day of his life not to act on those feelings. He wrote a book called Is God Anti-Gay? Questions Christian Ask. Questions Christians Ask. And he gives some good advice in that book about how we might respond to someone in our life who came to us and confided in us that they were gay or that they struggled with same-sex attraction. He said the, said the first thing you should do is thank them for being so open and entrusting something so personal to you. He said, it's also important to assure them that their fears of being rejected by you are unfounded. He said, you should listen to them, even ask them questions about how they knew they were gay and what that was like. The bottom line, he said, is the best way to share Christ with a gay friend is to make every effort to let them know you are for them, not against them. This doesn't mean you affirm what they do. It just means you care about them, that you have compassion for them. That's part of loving your neighbor. A woman named Rosaria Butterfield is a Christian author who came to faith in Christ out of a lesbian relationship. And she relates her story in her book that's called The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. She writes, her journey to Christ began when she wrote an article about her lesbianism in a local newspaper and received literally boxes and boxes of hate mail and fan mail. Affirmation or alienation, affirmation or hate. She said she separated the letters out into two containers, but there was one letter that didn't fit either category, and she called it, these are her words, the kindest letter of opposition that I have ever received. It was from a pastor who told her the truth about her sin, but warmly accepted her as a person. He spoke the truth to her in love. She said that letter opened up a conversation. Does this sound familiar? That letter opened up a conversation which led into a friendship with the pastor and his family, which led to her attending church and eventually trusting Jesus as her Savior. Friends, how can we care? How can we as Christians care for people who struggle with sin? How can we care for people who struggle with same-sex attraction, the first thing we can do is we can show them compassion because we are all created in the image of God. We are all sinners. We just sin in different ways. And Jesus tells us that we are to love our neighbor as ourself. Let me give you a second way that I think the church can reach someone like Stephen. Biblical clarity. Biblical clarity. Because, and here's the meat of the message, it's not enough to simply show compassion. We also have to speak the truth in love. In fact, one of the most loving things you can do for any person who is struggling with sin, regardless of what that sin might be, is to speak the truth from God's word to them about that sin, but always with an attitude of humility and always with an attitude of love. So what is the truth about same-sex relationships. What does the Bible say about gay and lesbian relationships or whatever words you want to use to describe them? 
Before I answer that, I want to just pause for a moment and tell you the same thing I I said last week so that there's no surprise, even though there shouldn't be. I want to tell you that I view the issue of same-sex relationships through the lens of Scripture, nothing else. That's the same thing I told you last week when we talked about gender identity. And I'll remind you of something else I said last week. I don't have a progressive view of the Bible and I don't have a postmodern faith. I am a conservative believer. I know people, I love people who are Christians who have changed their view on same-sex relationships over the years by questioning traditional interpretations of the different passages that are used to teach that sex, same-sex relationships are not God's will for anyone. So I wanna make sure that you understand that's not me. And the first thing I wanna do is I wanna give you a couple of resources for your own reading and your own study. I'm gonna put a couple of books up on the screen. The first one is What Does the Bible Really Teach About Homosexuality, written by a man named Kevin DeYoung. And the second one is the book People to Be Loved, Why Homosexuality is Not Just an Issue by Preston Sprinkle. You'll recognize his name because he's the author of the book Embodied that I recommended to you last week related to gender identity. On a personal note, I will tell you that I believe the book by Kevin DeYoung is the finest book that you can buy today related to this issue. I like Preston Sprinkle's book. I will tell you that I don't necessarily agree with everything that he writes in the book, but not to the degree that I wouldn't recommend it to you today. I just think Kevin DeYoung's book is outstanding. So having said that, let's talk about what it means to have biblical clarity related to same-sex relationships. I'm going to put several different verses or passages up on the screen today and tell you that these are the main proof texts that are used when we try to discover what the Bible has to say about same-sex relationships, gay and lesbian relationships. And I will tell you, I want you to listen to me really close, with the exception of these first two passages from the book of Genesis, Genesis 127 that we read just a moment ago, and Genesis 2, really that should say 20 through 25, with the exception of those two verses, every other, ones, every other verse here are, have come to be known by people and even Christians as the clobber passages when it comes to dealing with the issue of same-sex relationships. Or in other words, these are the passages that we use to clobber people who live with same-sex attraction or who live in same-sex relationships. Uh, And as a result, a lot of those passages, again, with the exception of those first two, Genesis 127 and what should be Genesis 2, 20 through 25, a lot of those passages are often attacked as being misinterpreted, misunderstood, and misused. There's absolutely no way we can go through all these passages uh, this morning for the purpose of a clear understanding. It would take too much time, and listen to me, it would be very, very tedious. And so I'm going to point you back to the books I mentioned earlier uh, by Kevin DeYoung and Preston Sprinkle, because both books cover each of these passages in detail. I believe Kevin DeYoung does a better job, but both of them cover these passages in detail. But at the same time... I do want to give you absolute biblical clarity about the issue today. And so there are three things I have for you, three things that we need to understand about same-sex relationships from a biblical perspective. And the first one is this. They are unnatural. They are unnatural. One of the temptations when it comes to studying the Bible, something I've been doing for a long, long time in my life and something that I know many of you do as well. We've got some great students of the Bible in this church. 
One of the temptations when it comes to studying the Bible to find specific answers to an issue is to view the Bible as more of a reference book than a book that reveals God. To view the Bible as more of a spiritual or religious encyclopedia than as a book that reveals the story of God and the power of God and the character of God and the heart of God and the desire of God and the will of God and the plan of God and on and on and on. And so when it comes to some relationships or some uh, subject in particular, we don't want to ask the question, what does the Bible teach about, for example, what does the Bible teach about same-sex relationships? We want to ask the question, what does the Bible teach about everything? And I want you to remember that. Because when we ask the question, what does the Bible teach about everything? then instead of simply zeroing in on and debating different verses, like many of the ones that I put up there, and that doesn't mean that I don't believe every one of those verses are valid because I do, but instead of doing that, we step back and we look at a bigger picture and we get a bigger understanding of what God says and how God feels about certain things. And that happens when we ask, what does the Bible say about everything related to sex and human relationships today. And when we do that, then we have to come to the conclusion that same-sex relationships are unnatural. I'm gonna put this verse up on the screen again, Genesis 1:27. Again, we're so familiar with it by now. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. We need to understand that that verse is given to us not only in the context of creation, but it also sets the pattern of God's design for sexuality. God created us, every one of us, to be sexual creatures, and the natural, everyone say natural, natural order for that sexuality is to be expressed through male and female relationships in the covenant of marriage. That's what the Bible teaches overall from cover to cover. We move ahead to Genesis chapter two, which was the second passage that I had up on the screen a moment ago with all those others, and we get a little bit more detail about this natural order that God created for men and women. Beginning with the latter part of verse 20, this is what we read. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found, so the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man and... He brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. And then God adds this, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. What do we see in those verses? Let me give you three words that I think describe what we see in those verses. The first one is the word companionship. There was no suitable helper for man and so God created woman. We see complementarity because he created them different different, physically different. We're reminded of that. We go back to Genesis chapter one after Genesis chapter one and verse 27 when it said God created man and woman. The next thing he said to them was be fruitful and increase in number. Why? Because of the complementarity of their being that they were different. And the third word we see is intimacy. So we see companionship. We see complementarity and we see intimacy. And we see intimacy on every level with these words, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. We see intimacy on every level. 
in those words. In other words, what we see in both of these passages from Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 is we see God's natural order for men and women. But it's not just Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 and the creation account that shows us or reminds us that God created the world with a natural order when it comes to the sexuality of men and women. We also see that in other parts of the Bible. I'm going to put Romans chapter 1 verses 24 through 27 up on the screen. And I'm going to put it up on the screen from the contemporary English version of the Bible, not the NIV Bible, the New International Version that I normally read. But I'm going to put it in the beginning on the, at the, in the contemporary English version. And here's what it says. People who want only to do evil, or people wanted only to do evil, rather. I'm having a hard time reading this morning. So God left them and let them go to their sinful way. And so they became completely immoral and used their bodies in shameful ways with each other. They traded the truth of God for a lie. They bowed down and worshiped the things God made instead of worshiping the God who made those things. He is the one who should be praised forever. Amen. Because people did these things, God left them and let them do the shameful things they wanted to do. Women stopped having natural sex with men and started having sex with other women. In the same way, men stopped having natural sex with women and began wanting each other all the time. Men did shameful things with other men and in their bodies they received the punishment for those wrongs. It's a powerful passage of scripture powerful. We don't have a time for a deep dive into those words, so I'm going to explain them like this. If you had your Bible open to Romans chapter 1, and you don't have to worry about that because I do. I got my Bible open to Romans chapter 1. You don't have to worry about turning there. Then here's what you would see. In Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, powerful verses, Paul writes about a righteousness that only comes from God. Listen to what he says. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. That's verse 16. Verse 17, for in, for in the, uh, the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as, as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. There is a righteousness available to us that only comes from God. That's what we see in verses 16 and 17. You get to verse 18, and Paul begins to present evidence of man's sinfulness, which illustrates how desperately we all need the righteousness that only God can provide. And then you get to verse 24, and Paul writes about that sinfulness. Because man abandoned God, God abandoned man. Now, in Romans chapter 1 and verse 24 in this contemporary English version Bible, it says it specifically like this. People wanted only to do evil, so God left them and let them go their sinful way. We need to understand those words, so God left them and let them go their sinful way. On the one hand, it sounds, when you read that from the contemporary English version Bible, it sounds like God just looks at man's sin, our sin, and chooses a hands-off policy that gives us a freedom to pursue what and practice whatever we think will please us. But it's more than that. What he's saying is more than that. Look at Romans 1.24 from the New International Version Bible. This is how the NIV renders this part. Therefore God gave them, men and women, sinful men and women, God gave them over. Gave them over to what? We gave them over to the consequences of sin and rebellion. Gave them over to the consequences of rejecting him and rejecting his word and rejecting his way and rejecting his plan and rejecting his order. 
And don't miss the fact that when Paul goes on to describe what it looked like when God gave man over to the consequences of sin and rebellion, as he began to describe that, he chose to describe it with sexual sin. Why? Because sex is such a wonderful and beautiful gift from God to man, but only, only when it's experienced and enjoyed the way God intended it to be, and that's within the covenant of marriage between a man and a woman, which is what we just talked about in Genesis chapter 2, verses 24 and 25, where we read, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. But this is the exact opposite about what Paul writes about men and women in Romans chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, where men and women abandoned natural sex relationships for unnatural relationships. Now, I know that one of the things that is often said about same-sex attraction is God made me this way. But friends, what Paul writes in Romans chapter one, especially his emphasis on the words natural and unnatural are in conflict with that belief. The bottom line is, and we talked about this last week with regard to gender identity, we live in a world that's broken and damaged and confused and frustrated by sin. And the brokenness of that affects us all in different ways. And one of the ways it affects us is in predisposition towards things that don't honor God. Do I I completely understand that? No, I don't. Do you? Probably not. But I can tell you as a pastor, for 43 years, I have met and talked to and counseled innumerable people who feel this predisposition towards something, not always same-sex attraction, but towards something that does not reflect the will of God. It is a sad reality of the broken, frustrated, fallen, confused world that we live in. But having the predisposition, whatever it might be, doesn't make it right. It just reminds us of how desperately we all need a savior. In one of the books I recommended earlier, the one by Kevin DeYoung called, What Does the Bible Really Teach About Homosexuality? He writes, no matter how we think we might have been born one way, Christ insists that we must be born again a different way. And the scriptures teach us that same-sex relationships are unnatural. I don't say that with any malice at all in my heart. I don't say that with any insensitivity towards someone who struggles. I say that as someone who believes completely in the truth of God's word. Here's the second thing that we need to understand about what the Bible says about same-sex relationships. They are sinful. And it might seem odd to go ahead and say it that way in such a specific way, giving everything that we just talked about related to the unnatural relationship of same-sex relationships. But I don't want to be vague or unclear in any way. And so I'm going to make... I'm going to go back to a statement, rather, that I made earlier about the Bible. We need to understand the Bible is not just a reference book. We need to understand the Bible is not just a spiritual or religious encyclopedia, that it is the story of God. And so, again, the 
correct approach oftentimes when we're trying to discover what the Bible teaches about something is not necessarily what does the Bible teach about, and you fill in the blank, but we have to ask the question, what does the Bible teach about everything? And so again, we look at the Bible related to the, the entire Bible, the unfolding story of the Bible with regard to men and women and sexual relationships. And when we do that, Here's what the Bible teaches, clearly teaches, about sexual relationships between men and women. The Bible teaches that any sexual activity that happens outside of the covenant of marriage between a man and a woman is sin. And I say that because there's a single word that's found in the original language of the New Testament over and over again, some 25 times, that's always translated, depending on what version of the Bible you have, as either sexual immorality, that's the way it's translated in modern translations, or fornication, which is just a weird word. (laughs) And that's how it's translated in older versions of the Bible. The Greek word is the word porneia. Porneia. And the literal definition of the word porneia is illicit sexual activity. And illicit sexual activity, when we think about what does the Bible teach about everything related to men and women and sexual identity and sexual relationships, the Bible teaches us that illicit sexual activity is any sex that happens outside of the covenant of marriage between a man and a woman. So it includes, but it is certainly not limited to same-sex relationships. Let me give you some examples. 1 Corinthians 6.13, the body is not meant for sexual immorality. 1 Corinthians 6.18, a little bit later in the chapter, flee sexual immorality. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 3, but among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality. I could certainly go on, but I'll stop right there. And one thing we need to understand about the issue we're talking about today is this. Because same-sex relationships, again, whatever word you want to use to describe it, homosexuality, gay, lesbian relationships, because those things are included in the definition of that Greek word porneia as sexual immorality, we need to recognize that the Bible doesn't describe it as a greater sin than any other sexual sin. Because the truth is all, I want everyone to say all, all, all sexual sin is offensive to God. Whether it's homosexual sin or heterosexual sin. And one of the things the critics of a biblical perspective about same-sex relationships say is that Christians are hypocrites because they're selective in their condemnation of sin. And you know what? When it comes to the condemnation of sexual sin, sometimes they are right. We can be selective. And here's what we need to remember. The Bible celebrates the sexual expression that happens between husbands and wives in marriage because that sexual expression is a precious gift from God. But outside of that, there are no other examples or expressions of sex in the Bible that are condoned by God. I hope you hear my heart on this, friends. This is the truth of God's word. Here's the third thing the Bible says about same-sex relationships. They can be forgiven. (sighs) 
no matter what our sin is, God's grace will always be greater than our sin. Which means all sin is forgivable, including the sin of homosexuality, gay, and lesbian relationships. I'm going to put these words up on the screen from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. Paul says, do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor the drunkards, nor slanders. Nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And then he says, and that is what some of you were, were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. What a powerful passage of Scripture. And that affirms that God's forgiveness and the giving of a brand new life is available to anyone, anyone who puts their faith and trust in Christ, no matter what their sin might be. And once again, this passage stands in contrast to people who say, I was born this way, so this is my only option. But what Paul says in those words is that when you surrender your life, in complete faith and trust to Christ, and then, then you are, and I'll just use Paul's words, you are washed, you are sanctified, you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. That means you've been changed and you're given a new identity in Christ and a new position in Christ. Paul said you were washed, you were sanctified and justified. Can I tell you that when I was a little boy, I grew up in my church my whole life and I heard all these church words all the time and I never understood what the word justified meant. I just ne- it just never made any sense to me. It wasn't in my vocabulary, my language. I, didn't, I wasn't ever able to, to figure it out. I knew what washed meant. I knew what sanctified meant, but I didn't know what justified meant. So I asked my youth pastor one day, what does it mean? And he said, he described it to me like this. He says, think of it like this. Being justified by Christ enables you to say, just as if I'd never sinned. Now, I can give you a way better definition of that today from an academic standpoint, but I don't think I can give you a better definition of that today from a practical standpoint, just as if I'd never sinned. And because of that, our faith in Christ gives us this new identity and position in Christ, and our responsibility as we live our lives is to live out that identity and live out that position in practical ways. And one of the ways we do that is by saying yes to the things that honor God and no to the things that don't honor God. Is it sometimes difficult? Oh my gosh. It absolutely is. But one of the reasons the Holy Spirit lives inside of us, you know, when you became a Christian, three things happened right away. Your sins were forgiven. You were given the promise of eternal life and the Holy Spirit of God, God, the Holy Spirit took up residence in your life. And one of the reasons why he lives inside of us is to empower us to be able to do what God calls us to do. But we don't experience the empowering of the Holy Spirit unless we feed that spirit inside of us and we live by the spirit and walk by the spirit. Again, my youth pastor said it's a difference between the Holy Spirit being a resident in your life or the president in your life. Maybe we should just have youth pastors preach from now on. (laughs) I know people who struggle with same-sex attraction who have made the decision to say no to that reality in their life. And I have such 
deep respect and admiration and appreciation for them because of their commitment to Christ. Here's the third thing, and I'm gonna do this really quickly. The third thing about how we reach the Stevens of the world. We talked about genuine compassion. We talked about biblical clarity. The third thing is friendship that is real. I referenced the book, Same-Sex Relationships by John Stott earlier. In the book, he writes, at the heart of every human condition is a deep and natural hunger for mutual love, a search for identity, and a longing for completeness. If gay people cannot find these things in the local church family, we have no business to go on using that expression. Church family. And that's not just true for people who have same-sex attraction. That's people, that's true for everyone who needs support in their life for some reason, who needs friendships that are real. That's why the Bible has so much to say about one another, about our responsibility as believers one to another. For example, Romans 12, 9, 11 says, love must be sincere, hate what is evil, cling to what is good, be devoted to one another in brotherly love, honor one another above yourselves, never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor, serving the Lord, Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, and let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let's not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Every church needs to practice a one another faith in a way that impacts people's lives. If you're someone who struggles with same-sex attraction, I want you to know that we care about you. We want to minister to you. I'm going to put a, a phone number up on the screen. You can write it down. You can text the word pastor to that phone number and it'll be completely anonymous and someone will reach out to you or if, if, if that's something that you're struggling with or if you, have, if you have someone in your life that you care about who's struggling with that and you need some help with that, then we want to make that available to you. I just want to close by just reminding you of something we talked about last week and we've, we've talked about it already, but I want to talk about it in one final specific way. We need to understand and remember that feelings and desires in and of themselves are not sinful. They can be temptations, but temptations are not sinful. We only sin when we act on those things. So let me close with a testimony from a man named Graham that, again, is found in that one book that I've referenced a couple of times by John Stott called Same-Sex Attraction. The team can get ready to come. I have heard many passionate arguments that we must change our teaching on sexuality because not all facing this temptation seem able to bear the struggle. This view is presented as a change grounded in pastoral wisdom and love. My experience has been the absolute reverse. I have chosen a path of abstention from homosexual practice, but not as a result of some special ability or strength on my part, but because the Bible's teaching is inescapably clear. The walk has not been easy. I've known periods of intense anguish and anger, but I have also experienced the mighty and compassionate hand of God pulling me free from that. This is, that has been a wonderful gift and an experience that resonates with the teaching of Jesus in the New Testament about the experience of living for him. He says, it is my conviction that changing our teaching to accommodate homosexual relationships does not just undermine a handful of Bible verses, but compromises the whole vision of the gospel. What does the Bible teach about everything? compromises the whole vision of the gospel. And then he writes these words, friends. And these are words all of us need to hear about or related to whatever sin we struggle with, that we're struggling with giving up or not giving into. He writes, Jesus is worth everything. 
Jesus is able to keep us from falling. I fear we are in accepting a message that says the single life is unbearable and that life is not possible without sex, but that is a lie. These views have no support in scripture or the wonderful life of Christ which we are called to imitate. Dare we say that anything is too much to offer to God? In other words, is anything too much to give up for God? Who gave up everything for us? In the person of his son Jesus who died in our place on the cross? And then he says, we, groan, we may groan with creation as we await his return, but what a reward awaits us. And he quotes Matthew 19, 29, where Jesus says, and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. And what joy Jesus brings us as he walks with us and cheers us on the way. Jesus, he said, Jesus is worth everything. <laughs>